Hey everyone, welcome to TaxCast with Chelsea, where I give you a small dose of interesting tax news and answer commonly asked tax questions. Today, let's review these three topics. IRS controls to prevent and recover from ransomware attacks were generally effective, according to a recent TIGDA report. But is that enough? Also, attorney Michael Avenatti sentenced to 14 years in federal prison for stealing and tax fraud. What are the details from the U.S. Attorney General in the IRS criminal investigation? Lastly, many states have passed SALT parity acts to favorably aid owners of pass-through entities with tax deductions. How does this work? And let's look at a specific highlights for my Missouri and Kansas business owners. The development of ransomware has made cybersecurity a hot topic in tax firm seminars and IT security for businesses. Employees or any casual computer user can accidentally click a link that downloads malicious code onto a computer device or even a network that prevents access to files. Then the user is notified to pay a ransom or else lose all the information. So it's a real and active threat for the modern man and could pose a considerable threat for our nation's tax system, which leads me to the next TIGDA report. On October 23rd of this year, TIGNA announced that the controls to prevent and recover from ransomware attacks were generally effective. They cited that the purpose of the audit was to determine the effectiveness of controls to respond and recover from malware or ransomware attacks. This obviously has a huge impact to the tax administration. Since the IRS collects and stores substantial amount of personally identifiable information, including tax records for individuals, corporations, Also, the IRS system contains information about planned or ongoing examinations, their collection actions, and criminal investigation cases. The IRS uses hundreds of different computer systems to perform different functions, from storing tax records to consulting print files for notices. Depending on which system is infected, the result could vary from minor to catastrophic. So yeah, I agree that this audit was worth doing for the protection of taxpayers. According to the summary found in the report, TIGDA reviewed IRS policies and procedures related to the incident response plan requirements and determined that they were generally consistent with the National Institute of Standards and Technology guidance. IRS officials state that there have been no successful ransomware attacks against the IRS prior to June 2022. However, the IRS informed TIGDA of one unsuccessful ransomware attack that was identified and mitigated. They identified the website traffic patterns consistent with the ransomware and removed the computer from the network. For this attack, TIGDA determined that the IRS took the appropriate actions to resolve the incident. TIGDA also reviewed IRS policies and procedures related to the required alternate storage site and system backup contingency planning controls and determined that they were generally consistent with the National Institute of Standards of Technology and Guidance. In addition, TIGDA selected four information systems and reviewed the results of annual testing of their information system contingency plan from July 1st, 2021 through June 30th of 2022. For three of the information systems, the IRS completed required testing and did not identify any issues related to the alternate storage sites and system backups. Accordingly, TIGDA concluded that these systems had effective controls to enable them to be restored in the event of a ransomware attack. The test results for the fourth information system identified unresolved issues related to the failure to backup system data on a daily basis as required. During their audit, the IRS corrected these deficiencies by performing daily backups. 
but system data was at risk for approximately two years until the IRS addressed this deficiency. So what did TIGDA recommend? TIGDA made no recommendations as a result of the work performed during their audit. In its response to the report, the IRS agreed with the facts and conclusions that were presented. It's important to remember to not get too comfortable as the nature of ransomware is constantly evolving. According to Kapersky, there are now ransomware variants that now have their own methods for copying and executing malware on other machines within a network. They describe in the report that the newer ransomware families include lockbit, play, and driver abuse, which can obfuscate detection and replicate quickly. We note that the IRS uses mainframe computer systems, uh, mainly Fortran, which is 60-year-old code, and they're having a hard time getting software engineers to operate. So I understand this TIGDA report is supposed to promote confidence in our IRS security systems. However, when there are only four systems that are sampled for the audit, and then the IRS also mentions that there are hundreds of different computer systems in its system, makes you wonder what they could have missed. It wasn't too long ago that we saw Michael Avenatti all over the media. He brought forth Stormy Daniels to take down President Trump. The ego is pretty apparent to anyone who watched him speak for more than three seconds, but being charged with more serious fraud crimes will be his legacy. Here's the rundown of Avenatti's convictions. The U.S. Attorney Brett Sagel characterized Avenatti as a serial fraudster. Prosecutors originally charged him with 36 counts but dropped them down to five with Avenatti's entry of guilty pleas on June 16th of 2022. There were four counts of wire fraud and one count of endeavoring to obstruct the administration of the Internal Revenue Code. One of his clients that he stole from was actually a paraplegic with mental health issues. He also obstructed IRS's efforts to collect more than $3 million in payroll taxes from an Avenatti-owned coffee business. Judge Selna also ordered Avenatti to pay $10,810,000 to restitution to four clients and to the IRS. On the wire fraud counts, according to the IRS, Avenatti received money on behalf of clients into the client's trust accounts. Then he misappropriated the money and then lied to the clients about receiving the money, or in one case, he claimed that the money had already been sent to the client. The four clients suffered actual losses totaling over $7.5 million. Although the details pertaining to each of the four clients underlining the charges in the indictment differ, the general pattern was the same, according to the sentencing memorandum filed by the prosecutors. Avenatti would lie about the true terms of the settlement agreement he had negotiated for the client, conceal the settlement payments that the counterparty had made, and then secretly take and spend the settlement proceeds that belonged to the client. Then he'd lull the client into not complaining or investigating further by providing the small advances on the supposedly yet-to-be-paid funds. According to the court documents, in the case of Jeffrey Johnson, Avenatti represented Johnson in a lawsuit against the County of Los Angeles that alleged, among other things, that Johnson became a paraplegic as a result of the county violating his constitutional rights. The county paid him $4 million in a settlement of January 2015, but within months, Avenatti had drained the entire settlement payment from his law firm's trust account and then used the portions of the settlement to finance his coffee business and pay for personal expenses. Avenatti never told Johnson about the settlement agreement in terms, and then he concealed from Johnson the receipt of the settlement payment from the county. 
Instead of giving Johnson his portion of the settlement, Avenatti gave Johnson periodic advances of no more than $1,900 and paid the rent for his assisted living facility to falsely reassure him that Avenatti was continuing to work on his behalf. Alexis Gardner obtained $3 million in settlement in a matter which included a payment of $2.75 million in early 2017. Avenatti never provided a copy of the settlement agreement to Gardner or told her the true terms of the settlement. Upon receipt of the settlement money, Avenatti took the bulk of his, this money, $2.5 million, and used it to purchase a portion of a jet, which falsely telling Gardner that the settlement called for monthly payments over eight years. Avenatti gave Gardner a small advance for rent and made approximately 12 monthly payments, totaling approximately $227,000, making them appear to come from an individual who paid the settlement. But then Avenatti stopped paying Gardner at all. Gregory Barella was to receive $1.9 million in a settlement of intellectual property dispute. Avenatti embezzled the first installment of $1.6 million in January of 18, in part by providing Barella with a bogus settlement agreement indicating that the payment was going to be made two months later. Avenatti used the money to pay expenses at his coffee business and to pay his own legal expenses. Michelle Fan and Long Tran hired Avenatti to negotiate a common stock repurchase agreement for the sale of almost $27.5 million worth of Fan shares in Ipsy, a company founded by Fan, and then another sale of an approximately $8.15 million worth of Fan shares. When the first payment was made, Avenatti took his fees for the overall $35 million sale and sent the balance to Fan. But when the second stock sale was finalized and the company sent nearly $8.15 million, all of which belonged to Fan, Avenatti kept $4 million for himself and used this money to pay some of his law firm's bankruptcy creditors, including the IRS, to provide funding for his various businesses and to make the lulling payments to the Johnsons, Garner, and Barella. When Fan and Tran demanded, demanded Fan's money, Avenatti falsely told them that the stolen $4 million already had been wired to them and provided them with a wire transfer confirmation document, which actually documented the transfer of an earlier $4 million payment. His scheme to defraud his clients was cruel, often reducing those clients to begging for needed funds and make them feel beholden to him when he, quote-unquote, advanced or loaned them funds that were, in fact, the client's own money. Prosecutors argued this in the sentencing memorandum. In regards to the tax court, Avenatti corruptly obstructed and impeded the IRS's efforts to collect more than $3.2 million of unpaid payroll taxes, which includes money that was withheld from the paychecks of employees of Global Baristas US LLC, the Avenatti-owned company that operated Tully's Coffee and should have been paid to the IRS but never did. Avenatti obstructed the agency's efforts to collect the monies that his company owed by making false statements to the IRS revenue officer directing employees to stop depositing cash receipts and changing the, the company name, employee identification number, and bank account information listed with his credit card processing company to avoid IRS levies. In addition, prosecutors argued in support of allegations in an indictment that Avenatti failed to file individual tax returns or pay any personal income taxes for the 2011 through 2017 tax years, even though he had substantial income and lived lavishly. He also failed to file partnership returns or pay taxes, including payroll taxes, for his now-defunct Newport Beach-based law firm Egan Avenatti LLP, 
of which he was the managing partner from 2013 to 2017, even though the law firm received many millions of dollars during those years. Furthermore, Avenatti failed to file corporate tax returns or pay taxes for Avenatti and Associates, where he was the president from 2011 to 2017, even though his entity also received substantial funds. So I doubt there are many surprised that Avenatti was morally compromised. He's a great example of the fraud triangle, which is commonly used to illustrate the reason behind an individual's decision to commit fraud. Opportunity, incentive, rationalization. Additionally, one cannot minimize the role of a person's sociopathic nature to put themselves outside of moral boundaries and, of course, above the law. Lastly, I want to discuss tax savings opportunities for those who have an ownership stake in a pastor entity, also known as a PTE. Many states are passing SALT parity acts where corporations can pay the entity-related tax at the corporate level for a federal tax deduction on behalf of its members in a partnership or shareholders in an S-corporation. The legislation recognizes that with the TCJA, Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, the SALT section of itemized deductions for state and local taxes and individuals limited to $10,000 per return. By taking advantage of this strategy, taxes are shifted from the state individual level to the corporation and passed through the PTE ownership structure. IRS Notice 2020-75 essentially blessed this tax strategy to minimize taxes, saying that the IRS provides certainty regarding the deductibility of payments by partnerships and S-corporations for state and local income taxes. And the link that describes more of this can be found in the show notes. As currently stated, when computing taxable income or a loss, Section 164A of the Internal Revenue Code generally allows a deduction for certain taxes for the taxable year within which paid or accrued, including state and local foreign real property taxes, state and local property taxes, and state and local foreign income war profits and excess profits taxes. In addition, Section 164 also allows deduction for state and local foreign taxes not described in the preceding sentence that are paid or accrued within the taxable year in carrying on a trade or business or an activity described in Code Section 212 of the Code. Section 164B, too, provides that for purposes of Section 164, state or local tax includes only a tax imposed by a state, a possession of the U.S. or United States, or a political subdivision of any of the foregoing or by the District of Columbia. So who can participate in these SALT parity acts? Many states that have enacted this legislation, including Kansas and Ohio, enacted this legislation in 2022, and Missouri's legislation is effective for 2023. Wisconsin was the first state in the Midwest to enact this legislation in 2019, with Illinois, Minnesota, and Michigan following in 2021. Since I'm based out of Kansas City, I'm going to focus and highlight some of the updates for the Kansas and Missouri residents. So for Kansas, it is in effect for 2022, and it's going to be in effect for Missouri for 2023. It's an annual election that the entity must pay the tax at the entity level. If you're in Kansas, you would issue or or pay the tax on a K120S estimated voucher, and the rate would be 5.7%. If you're in Missouri, it's also an annual election, and the rate is going to be paid at 5.3%, which is actually 22 rates, and they may be adjusted up next year. The election is binding, and all electing pass-through entity owners and shareholders will receive this benefit. 
You can't have one who doesn't want to participate and all others do participate. So it's really an all or nothing entity election. Kansas did say that if there is a shareholder or a member of a PTE and they are a non-resident of Kansas, if that income is only attributed for Kansas and the only reason they, they would file a tax return, then Kansas is not requiring that individual, that non-resident, to file an individual return if they elect into the SALT parity election. Any excess of income tax credit that is paid at the corporate level may be carried forward and not refundable, but it is utilized only in a year in which the election is made for that entity. For Missouri residents, you will attach a Missouri TC to the return. If you're a Kansas resident, you're also going to be able to take a credit for taxes paid for those taxes that are paid at the entity level. So what action should you take? Look at your current projected income for the year in your PTE. If you are a cash basis company, then you may need to make this tax payment at the corporate level by December 31st. Also, to quickly calculate the benefit, use an example of $100,000 of normal taxable income that you would receive from your PTE. If your top tax tier is 22%, then in the state of Kansas, this federal savings could amount to tax savings of $1,254 in total savings. And I got that by taking $5,700, which is 5.7% of $100,000 times 22%, the top tier. So this type of planning could be significant for most clients and would require a tax planning meeting with your tax advisor, as there may need to be some changes with your W-2 state withholdings or even your individual estimated tax payments that you have been making. If you would like to find more information, you can go to each Department of Revenue website found for each state, and they will describe more about how to take this credit. Thanks again for listening. You can find today's links in the show notes below from today's podcast. If you like this podcast, then please hit subscribe and also add a five-star rating so that other people can listen too. Feel free to connect with me and let me know your ideas for a future TaxCast.